Navy Federal is proud to serve more than 8 million members, including active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their families. You receive a lifetime of membership benefits with Navy Federal, and you can easily access accounts, transfer money, pay bills, and deposit checks with the Navy Federal mobile app. Visit NavyFederal.org MLB for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. The trade deadline is over, the pennant race is on, and so is Zach Cram. Here he is to talk about how teams can improve themselves after the trade deadline. All right, so leading things off, as always, is uh, my good friend and fellow staff writer, Zach Cram. Zach, thanks for joining me. Hello. Uh, we're going to talk about, so actually, we one of the the ways that we had no idea what was going to happen at this trade deadline was we didn't really know what was going to happen after the trade deadline because there's this great tradition of August trades and sometimes you get the occasional blockbuster, but usually it's just the end of the bench bat, the relief arm, just you know doing that last minute shopping before the stretch run. And uh, we were sort of curious as to how teams are going to accomplish that. And so there were some, you know, some of these moves, like the Jason Vargas deal was an August move. Um, maybe some of these reliever deals were were August moves that had just had their timeline moved up. But some of these, you know, some of these players just hadn't moved a lot of these. Uh, so we're in this in this situation now in August, and we are still seeing a little bit of player movement. Yeah. So just this week, we saw Edstrubel Cabrera, who had been released by Texas, signed with the Nationals. And Kevin Gaussman, in what I thought was a surprise move, was waived by Atlanta and claimed by Cincinnati. And in the past, we always had to deal with the complexities of waivers in August. And you can put someone on waivers, but take them back or maybe trade them. And it was very confusing, but we still had to explain it every year because it was important. That's how Justin Verlander was traded from Detroit to Houston. But now it's much simpler. And basically, the only way that a player on a major league contract can change teams now is by just being waived and claimed by another team or released and signed somewhere else. There's no trade. The other team just assumes the salary. And that's what Cincinnati did. They took on the remainder of Gaussman's contract. I think both of us are curious to see if this happens more over the remainder of the month, because that's the only way now to add major league quality players at this point in the season. And I feel a little... Like, I feel like I should have anticipated something like this happening because, I mean, you cover the NBA a fair amount like this is this is the buyout market. And that's just there. You know, there's always been a a one tiered uh, trade deadline in the NBA. And after that, you just find teams that have players on expiring contracts, you know, the teams out of the race. And you just get into a situation where it's better for everybody if the team just buys out the rest of the contract. Uh, you know, the team frees up a little bit of money. The player gets to go someplace where he can make a difference. And the team that, that gets him gets to add a rotation player. You know, sometimes they are actually rotation players who move after the deadline and you see teams sort of planning. That, okay, we're not going to make this move at the deadline because we're going to see what's out there, see if we can get somebody for free or cheap after the, the buyout or after, um, after the trade deadline and buyout season. And this is like, this looks almost exactly like that because it's not just waivers. We're seeing players like, you know, Drew Smiley and, and Blake Parker got released and then picked up by the Phillies who just need, you know, need pitching depth. And so it's interesting to see, uh, see that model sort of, uh, transfer over to Major League Baseball. Yeah, and I think there are a couple reasons that teams might want to do this, both the quote-unquote sellers and the buyers. From the seller's perspective, I think owners don't want to spend money if they don't have to. And if between July 31st, maybe you're a National League team that's still kind of in the race, and then you realize by the end of August that you're no longer in the race in the past, you would have the opportunity to offload a contract uh, via trade. But now, if the owner wants to save money on that last month, month and a half of salary, he can just, uh, the, the team can waive the player and hope someone else assumes that money. Uh, and then from the buyer's perspective, there are a couple reasons you would want to add. You could add someone for a playoff run if they become available. You could add just because you need a warm body, like you said, to throw innings between now and September. Or like in the case of the Cubs, for instance, they had acquired Martin Maldonado in July and then traded him again because Wilson Contreras came back from injury. 
Well, Wilson Contreras is injured again for four weeks, so I think it's conceivable that the Cubs would try to add a catcher, not necessarily to fit on their playoff roster, but just if they need someone to soak up innings behind the plate uh, between now and when Contreras comes back. Injuries will still continue to happen, and teams might not have ready-made replacements on their 40-man rosters. Uh, And the final reason is, I think, what Cincinnati has done with Kevin Gaussman is he is under contract for another year. Uh, They could non-tender him and not offer him arbitration this winter, but basically he now has a two-month audition to prove that he's worth it for Cincinnati to keep him around for another year. Cincinnati knows they're not really in the playoff picture anymore, but why not take a flyer on someone who has been a very effective pitcher up until recently uh, and basically have him as a free flyer uh, for next season? Yeah, and it's it's interesting like how neatly all these pieces fit together because when you get these post deadline waiver claims or or uh players being signed and um after being released, like this works out for every party that like everybody sort of comes away happy. Um and it also impresses the you know the importance of one thing that I think that that casual fans maybe underrate a little bit is roster space, not just on the 25 man roster, but the 40 man roster that, you know, injuries pile up that you're looking to sort of rotate players in and out of the uh, lineup, particularly the back end of the bullpen or, or bench bats, you know, based on who's hot, who's healthy, who's injured. And, you know, if Kevin Gossman's not going to help the Braves, the Braves need that roster spot. And it's not just about. It probably is at least a little bit about clearing salary because he's making, I think, like $9 million this year. So the the Reds picked him up and now they're on the hook for the remainder of this year's salary. Um, but it's a 40-man spot that the Braves just – that the Braves can use on somebody who can help them a little bit more. And yeah, it's just interesting – how like convenient this is and it's it is the the free hand of the market so to speak sort of you know that that a uh, divine uh uh providence landing everything you know everything in the in the place where it's supposed to be it's it's interesting to watch all this play out in a more mutualistic than adversarial uh scenario like when we're talking about competition for free agents or, or specifically trades i wouldn't expect uh an all-star to be traded in this period or not traded, but to move in this period, I wouldn't expect even a boldface name or someone who requires like an article to be written about them at the ringer necessarily, just because that's not the caliber of player who would be able to be placed on waivers. But in the NBA, it's not like all-stars are moving past the trade deadline either. It's depth players like PJ Brown for the Celtics, I think is a famous example of this. And then he, provided an important supporting role on a team that won the championship. Baseball is a sport where you need depth players. It's not just the stars who take you to victory. And whether that's an extra catcher, an extra backup infielder like Cabrera is going to be for the Nationals, while a lot of their players are hurt, whether it's just an extra reliever, I think there are so many areas in baseball that you just always need bodies and you always need someone who is at least replacement level and not below replacement level, who is a zero or adding positive value instead of detracting, that there will be opportunities throughout the remainder of this month. Even look at the Yankees, for instance. They have three more injuries over the weekend. They're relying on Bravik Valera, who is in their minor leagues, but Bravik Valera is the kind of player, I think, who fits this uh, this bill of what we're talking about. Yeah, and it's, you know... I guess Gossman's the Luke Roy's another example or another guy who maybe like moves a needle a little bit, but that's more just because of how big a name he is, not because like he is just sort of the competent catcher that the Cubs might be interested in because they traded away Maldonado. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. This is cool to watch. And so this is something that I think we, I, I'm, a little bit surprised how active this market has been, uh, that it is, you know, we're, we're only a week into August. I imagine it'll pick up as the August 31st playoff roster deadline approaches, but it's, uh, it's been fun to, you know, Zach Godley's been designated for assignment. You know, we'll see where he ends up. You know, it, it's, it's cool to see how teams are sort of navigating this. So last week, MLB trade rumors had a, very useful primer called So What Can Teams Do in August? Basically explaining now that there's only one trade deadline here, the only other ways to add players. They have waiver claims, signing of waived players, 
uh, dealing for veterans on minor league deals, acquiring players from the uh, international uh, from from the international and, and independent leagues. Uh, but there was one possibility down here that I had thought about and intrigued me, and I'm curious if you think it'll happen at all. And this is dealing for prospects because, as we've discussed, you can't trade for players on major league contracts anymore. But what if it's just a prospect for prospect trade? We get those so rarely. We almost saw one at the deadline this year when Arizona traded uh, infielder Jazz Chisholm to the Marlins for starting pitcher Zach Gallen. Now, Zach Gallen is still a prospect, but he had made a few starts with the Marlins, so he couldn't be traded now in August because I think he, yeah, he was like one, well, he was on a major league contract, but he was also like one start away from losing his rookie eligibility. Right. But say it's someone like Zach Gallen who hasn't made a major league start yet, but someone of his prospect position who's very close to the majors. Do you think it's at all possible we could see teams aiming higher than waived veterans and make some sort of prospect for prospect trade? If you're a team that's out of it, you trade, uh, major league ready reliever for instance for an infielder with more upside but who's further away from the majors i'm not saying that's definitely going to happen but that could be a way to add some more excitement to these kinds of deals we're talking about yeah i would love to see it happen just because i don't know exactly what that looks like because you'd think that even teams that are out of it you look at the team control of somebody who hasn't made his major league debut yet you know that's six maybe seven years I, I would say every team in baseball has ambitions of competing within that time frame. So you, you know, would hope anyway. Oh boy. Um, yeah, that's a long look in the mirror. Uh, so it, I, I wonder like, and that, that would be a huge risk for any contender. Cause I just like, I can't imagine it being like a top 100 guy. I don't know if the, you know, I don't know off the top of my head who like the, the hot, fast rising, college reliever in this year's uh prospect classes but you know somebody like that ends up on the the right team you know we've seen players like that come up internally and make a difference down the stretch uh i yeah i i just have so little idea of what it would take to to pull off a trade like that that would have an impact for this year's stretch run because the the gallon for chisholm deal is sort of you know gallon's helpful this year the Diamondbacks are sort of teetering on the edge of the race. They're they traded Granky, but they're uh, they're not out of it yet. So that's that's a little bit of a hedge. Yeah, I I would imagine that if we see prospect trades in August, it would be you know players farther away. I agree. It would have to happen in a very narrow, specific set of circumstances, and might not happen at all. But certainly generates more interest i think than like oh which team's going to sign jonathan lucroy now no insult to lucroy but he's just no longer the player he once was and that's kind of the trend for a lot of these players kevin gaussman as dribble cabrera Zach godley it's players who were maybe good and exciting two to three seasons ago but no longer uh carry that torch and are depth pieces now there's a reason they're being waived so i think it's interesting from a strategic perspective it's the first time we're seeing movement like this at a concerted level, I think, because of the change in the rules. But it's not going to uh, it's not going to generate anywhere near the interest or rumor mongering that I, I think we would have seen in August past. Yeah, I wonder if I wonder how true that's going to continue to be and you know maybe we've just seen the biggest names hit waivers and and there's not going to be anybody bigger than these guys uh coming um but i wonder if just the vacuum of well there's no josh donaldson to trade for let alone you know no uh no justin verlander no josh beckett and adrian gonzalez you know all the the big august trades that, that we've talked about um i wonder if just because that's what we have to talk about that's what uh we're gonna end up focusing on I think the issue there is just how many players are even available of this caliber? Have they already all been released or are there more to come? Like we talked about, I think the best candidates for this are players on expiring contracts. Obviously, Gaussman and Godley don't fit that description, but it would just make the most sense from an owner saving money standpoint. And I would guess that a lot of the more attractive players who are on expiring deals would have already been 
traded in July. Well, the other thing about that is um, there is the option to non-tender those guys. So you could, you know, there's no, um, you know, Godley got DFA'd. He's going to be arbitration eligible after this season. So that's the other thing. It, guys who get released are generally not making the the minimum. So, like, even if you get, even if you release them and another team picks them up, uh, there's some some like tangible salary relief. You know, you're not just getting a hundred thousand dollars back because one team's picking up the tab for part of the minimum salary for a month and a half of the season. It, it's a substantial uh, savings. So. I don't know if you've already made up your mind on on a player like Gosman or or uh, Godley, um, might as well cut them loose now. That's true. One thing we didn't mean to to talk about, unless you have anything else on this, go for it. Uh, have you seen the players' weekend uniforms? I have not. Oh, are they good or are they bad? They are dog shit, man. Really? So you know how everything was uh, was colorful in years past? It's in Slack right now. Go go take a peek. Um, oh no. Yeah. Uh, it's all monochrome now. So we're getting like the, the, uh, so every, like every team is either going to be all white or all black. And they say that, uh, the, the reasoning behind this is apparently, uh, to let the players colorful accessories stand out more, uh, which will, you know, maybe this will work. Maybe we'll see it on the field. Uh, this just like, the white ones just look like the man from glad. Like there was like an Oregon uniform, an Oregon football uniform like this a few years ago where you just like, they just look washed out. Why we don't have to get into a whole uniform debate right now, but why aesthetically is baseball afraid of color? Like I understand the diamondbacks uniforms, for instance, are very controversial, but thinking about how we're going to look back on uniforms in like 20 years the uniforms that people deride at the time always become nostalgic. This I is agree, a, 100%. true across sports, like the Toronto Raptors original uniforms with the giant red Raptor over the purple. Love those now. The old Rockets uniforms with the rocket ship on it. Like when you play a video game and you're able to s- switch your uniforms, you always search for the nostalgic ones that might have been thought of as garish at the time, but are actually representative and unique as opposed to just bland gray uniforms. Uh, so I am a supporter of the Diamondbacks uniforms from that perspective alone. I like uh, idiosyncrasies and iconoclasm and more words that start with I. Uh, and I think Players Weekend is a wonderful opportunity to explore the outer limits and the the furthest extremes of uniform building. And this is probably the polar opposite of that. Um, so maybe it'll end up working, but my initial glimpse uh is not favorable so like the bigger the richer the longer tenured an entity is uh the more conservative it gets and i think there's just such i mean this is why like 24 teams in major league baseball i don't know if that's accurate off the top of my head have uh red white black and blue as like some combination of those colors as their key colors. And so you see teams that have been willing to take risks recently with their uniforms. It's mostly been expansion teams, you know, with the rock, you know, the Rockies and Marlins just choosing the, the, the uh, colors they did off the, um, uh, when they came into the league in 1993, it was a huge risk. The diamondbacks have always been, uh, well, not always, but for, for, for the most part, they've been willing to take risks. The, you know, I guess the Rays are something of an exception, but they started off with that purple and green color scheme and sort of went to, um, I'm, uh, but I have a hard time like trashing their uniforms now because they are really good looking uniforms, even if they are a little conservative. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know which one this is. Like, I don't know if this is a safe focus grouped thing that that's not going to ruffle any feathers or if it's really going to look startling. And, Moving uh, like the Cubs to an all white uniform when there is another team in the Cubs city that has the word white in its name is really striking, I think, and not in a good way. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I know I said they're dog shit right at, at the top. That's just a first impression. I'm willing to change my mind about this uh, when we see how that that looks. So, 
All right. I just this came up between our planning meeting and uh, and when we were recording, and uh, we're not going to talk about this on the at any other point on the show. So we needed to to get something in there because I you know uniforms are very important to me. They are not at all important to Ben. Uh, so you get to to have this conversation. I have to go write an article now, but I'm just going to be so distracted by the thought of these. Thanks for ruining my afternoon. I mean, if you uh, just find yourself staring at a blank white page, just, you know, this is what the Texas Rangers are going to be wearing. (laughs) All right, go right. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. When you're looking for new furniture, there's a lot to consider, like how you're going to get it in the door or how comfortable it'll be when the game goes into extra innings. Now, Burr is changing all of that with a simple, adaptable, easy-to-move furniture that can be assembled and disassembled in just a few minutes. Plus, it ships to your door fast and free. Now, I've got Burr furniture in my living room. Uh, it's just like it says. They come in a box. Within a few minutes, it's all assembled, and they have withstood uh, years' worth of food spills, cat abuse, extra inning World Series games, the works. Burr's clever design features naturally scratch and stain resistant fabric plus sturdy hardwood frames and soft foam cushions. There's even a built-in USB charger. Burr is totally customizable so you can pick one of five fabric colors, three leg finishes, two armrest styles, any length, and you can even add a chaise lounge or ottoman. Plus they just launched the Nomad Leather Collection, featuring the same convenient design with the option of top grain Italian leather upholstery. Get your living room the upgrade it deserves with Burrow, the official sofa of the ringer. Get $75 off a new sofa and free one week shipping by visiting burrow.com com slash MLB. That's P-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash MLB for $75 off a new sofa. All right. So my next guest uh, will be familiar to those of you who follow prospect coverage, baseball prospectus, who listen to the For All You Kids Out There podcast. Uh, it is his first time on this show, however, and it's my pleasure to welcome to the program, Jarrett Seidler. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. It's currently massively thunderstorming right outside my window here. But other than that, uh, doing pretty well. The Mets are doing pretty well, which is cool, too. I uh, I hope there's not, we're praying for no power outage, uh, I guess, in, in more ways than one. So the, one of the reasons that I'm having you on is uh, uh, at the at the deadline when, I think it was Ben and I were talking about the Marcus Stroman trade. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was me. I said, like, I like this trade in a vacuum, but I don't know if they if they're going to be able to get it back into the race because I don't think they have like a 17 and five run in them like the Giants had. And uh, sure enough, as we record now, the Mets record over their past 22 games is exactly 17 and five. Uh, So they have won. What is it? uh, Ten of their last 11. Uh, I believe that's correct. And uh, what the hell, man? (laughs) What's going on? Oh, well, the pitching, which has always been capable of doing this, you know, dating back to 2014, 2015 now, you know, when they were in the World Series in 2015, when they made the playoffs in 2016, they've actually got all five of their starters healthy and basically pitching well at the same time, which is something that even as they've always had, well, not always, but most of the time they've had four or five really great starters over the last five years. They usually haven't been like healthy and good at the same time, but you know, they've DeGrom is back to pitching like Jacob DeGrom and has pitched himself back into the NL Cy Young race after his start was not particularly great. And then he had an elbow injury. Strowman's obviously having a real good year. His uh, first start with the Mets wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible either. Uh, Wheeler's been pitching well. Syndergaard's been absolutely phenomenal lately. And, you know, Mats is Mats. But they've got five really good starting pitchers. And the lineup is better than it might seem on paper. And Jeff McNeil is leading the National League in batting. And Pete Alonso has 35 home runs. And... J.D. Davis might be good, I guess. But they've I've got always like said J.D. Davis was good. Yeah, I mean, he's hitting 300 right now with some pop, which is a lot more than I think you could have reasonably expected out of J.D. Davis. Michael Conforto is having what is basically a Michael Conforto season now. I guess he's kind of settled in as like a 30% above average hitter who can play center or either corner. So they've got like some really good things going, and then they've got a bullpen, which is basically Seth Lugo and Edwin Diaz, kind of, and some other guys who usually give up a lot of runs. And this is so. This is like 
it's almost like the antithesis of of what you'd expect a modern contender. You look at like these super deep teams like the Astros and the Yankees or you know like the the way the the Rays have a very flat uh roster construction with, with relatively few stars but just a ton of competent players. And you know, I think describing the Mets as top heavy does a little bit of a disservice to uh how deep this lineup is and the the number of guys who are you know, I don't know how I feel about Rosario being a league average hitter forever, for instance, but he is, you know, that's how he's played so far this season. Um, and the same, you know, the same thing with Davis, they, they have a fair amount of hitters, but the ones they're very best ones, the McNeil's, the, the Alonzo's, the Conforto's are good enough to really carry the, the team. And I think that this, the way they're playing right now is sort of how I expected them to be from the beginning of the season. Yeah, definitely. They had a lot of injuries early on. I mean, they've had a lot of injuries all the time. They're the Mets. They always have a lot of injuries. At some point, it's probably not luck either. Like, there's probably some underlying issues here with the organization. God knows there's underlying issues with the organization generally, which have been well documented. But yeah, this was kind of the shape of how you might have seen them contending. Although, in some respects, it's different guys. Like, Brandon Nimmo was one of the better hitters in the National League last year, and he's been either hurt or bad pretty much the entire season. And you might have expected Robinson Cano to be, you know, having the kind of offensive output that McNeil is now, even more than you'd have expected McNeil to because McNeil even coming into this McNeil didn't really even have a job on opening day he like kind of had to claim a job as the season went along and he was you know as people that follow me are well aware of he was not considered a highly touted prospect basically until the time he was called up last year he was kind of like a minor league utility guy and then all of a sudden it turns out he's a 330 hitter I do follow you, and uh, he's been quite highly touted, uh, at least uh, you know as far as you've been concerned for for the past few years. Yeah, I I got heavily on that bandwagon early in the 2018 season when he was in Double A, which has caused a few memes to be created. But I don't think baseball writ large had accepted him as what he is until I don't know, probably halfway through the season. And, you know, there's always some variance and some lack of stickiness in the hit tool. So he might, he's probably not going to hit 330 forever either. But it's it's different guys. Like, you didn't know what you were going to get from Alonzo coming into the season. He was a highly touted prospect. He was in our top 50 last offseason. He was a second-round pick back in the day. But there were questions about whether he was going to hit for average. And the idea that he was going to be, he was on pace for about 50 home runs, the idea that he would be like a 50, 45, 50 home run guy instead of a 30 home run guy, that wasn't set in stone either. Like that, that right, right first base college hitter profile has produced a lot of heartache in the prospect community over the years. And that's extremely him. He's a big beefy boy from the university of Florida who takes his big swings and tries to hit the ball very hard. And that's not always a profile that works out at the major league level. It's really no, working out for him right now. He's been one of the best hitters in the National League so far this season. Yeah, I was. I, I think it was either with with you or Matt Winkleman. I was talking about how Alonzo and Reese Hoskins panning out is gonna just completely throw everything out of whack. Just because th- those are two guys who like they almost never pan out, and now Alonzo in particular, I, like I don't know, he's got an outside shot at breaking the rookie home run record. And I mean that is that's even as somebody who liked Pete Alonzo as a hitter. Like, that's completely unexpected. Right. Like, he was only even really getting into this 80 raw power once he started getting into the high minor leagues. He wasn't getting to all of it when he was in the low minors. Now he obviously is, and he just he hits the ball so hard and so far. His uh, hit a home run in the game two of the doubleheader last night that was, like, 10 feet off of the ground, but it just like went out like absurdly fast because he just hit so freaking hard. And you kind of don't know which guys are going to be able to make the last adjustments against the good high fastball and the good breaking ball away from them until they get into the major leagues. And a lot of those dudes don't do that, but he did. And Reese Hoskins did. And if you go back a little, Paul Goldschmidt did. But those are the exceptions more than the rule for that kind of extreme high-level production out of that player type. Yeah. And so this is like, and uh, this is something that I talk about on this podcast all the time is 
the Mets have have either been lucky or good at so many difficult things from a player development perspective because McNeil, Alonzo, and especially DeGrom are like monumental uh, scouting and player development achievements. And, you know, to a lesser degree, you know, Syndergaard was not this even when they traded for him. Um, and so they do that and then they mess up so many other seemingly easier things. And that's just, this is the... It fits perfectly with the narrative of this season where they are playing right now. Like it was not out of the realm of the possibility uh, at the beginning of the year that they would be this good, but they put themselves in a hole. And only now after getting red hot in, in July and August, have they climbed back into the race. And so like it almost makes you wonder like how much of the, so they held on to Wheeler and Syndergaard after trading for Stroman after, you know, both Wheeler and Syndergaard were, were on the block. You know, how much of this is intentional and how much of this is just like things work out. And that's, you know, not to take anything away from the Mets because just having things working out is is like half the half the proverbial ballgame. I will say this for the Mets ownership group. I have great ideological differences in all kinds of facets of how they run their baseball team. And they don't always execute the idea in the way that they should. They don't spend enough money. They don't, they get too involved in baseball decisions themselves. But I think at the root of all of this, they really want to win all the time. It's why they never let themselves rebuild. It's why they never do a tanking project. They don't do any of this stuff because they always want to win. And I think that they didn't sell at the deadline, even with at the time, you know, high, high single low teen digit shots at the playoffs, depending on which playoff odds you use, because there's that incredible optimism from the ownership group that, wow, we're only five games out of this. Let's go for it. Why not? And I kind of respect that in a weird way, because there aren't that many owners in baseball that actually think that way right now. You had teams that were in playoff spots functionally selling at the deadline. You had all of these fringe NL wildcard contenders, except for the Mets and the Reds, just sold. And the Mets bought instead, which is kind of cool. Even if everything else about it is weird, it may not make sense in a modern sabermetric way. And I certainly don't support the ownership group as a whole. But it is kind of cool just to see a team go, eh, screw it, let's go for it and not sell their parts for 50 cents on the dollar or whatever. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's good that, that, uh, like irrational confidence and optimism occasionally get rewarded in this fashion. And, you know, I say get rewarded, they still got a ways to go. Um, but they're, I mean, they're certainly playing better than any of their, uh, I mean, just the, the state of the NL wildcard right now is like it's best summed up in that the Phillies have been playing like total crap for like four months and are still somehow. Yeah. They're like totally falling apart, but they're still in the mix, which right. I mean, well, they, I mean they're, we're talking about the Mets. The Mets are one game over right now, right? right? They're not like having this amazing run to like 15 games over. They're still eight and a half, I believe, out of the division lead, which isn't insurmountable, but it's still a long way back. Like, they're not one, objectively a good baseball team yet. But this is, I mean, this is kind of the point, is that if you're going to take that wild swing from your heels, now's as good a time as any, because one game over gets you within a hot weekend of, like, the two teams in the wild card spots right now are the Nats and Phillies, and so you've got division opponents who you're going to play down the stretch. Like, they control their own playoff destiny right now. and. I don't know who in front of them really scares you. You know, I, I don't know who in the entire national league scares me right now, apart from the Dodgers and maybe the Braves. So this, you know, if you're going to try to come from all the way back, this is a year to do it. And that's certainly what they've tried to do. And they've cut that, cut that deficit all the way down to two and a half games. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it could not be, uh, it could not be the Mets and have it not be weird and oddly difficult and unnecessarily difficult, but that's what they've done. Yeah, they've, they've done, it's in a very Mets way, too. Like, they're continuing weird lineup decisions and weird player personnel decisions, and Robinson Cano just tore his hamstring, and it's just, it's, it's extremely Mets. You know, they got, Seth Lugo has been their best reliever, and he 
like really can't pitch on back-to-back days. He's got usage limitations on him. They played a doubleheader last night and they got him warm twice and then used him for two innings in the bottom. He got warm twice in the first game and then they used him for two innings for a two inning save in the bottom half. Like they're going to pitch this guy's arm off if they keep doing stuff like that. It's sort of it's already just done bizarre, it already. bizarre move. Yeah, of course. Um, and Edwin Diaz, who of course they traded an absolute monstrous haul for, um, you know, Jared Kelnick, who we had in the top 15 at midseason, Justin Dunn, who we didn't have far off of the top 50. And they took Robinson Cano's contract or, you know, nearly $100 million worth of it just to get Edwin Diaz. And he's been pretty much absolutely terrible for them in the first two thirds of the season. The argument on the flip side is he still flashes like he's Edwin Diaz. So maybe from now on, he suddenly goes back to being Edwin Diaz. But like a lot of the stuff they did in the off season just didn't work at all. And yet here they are. The other reason before I let you go uh, that I want to have you on is your prospect background. We've had in the first week of August, a couple of prospects uh, debut who I wanted to run by you. The first one actually made his debut against the Mets and homered off the Mets. It's on Diaz of the, the Marlins. Uh, uh, I love this is not the first time this has happened, but like the when the player gets his first major league hit while the local broadcast is talking to his parents is like one of the was one of my favorite things about uh, baseball coverage. And uh, that not only happened, he hit a home run off Jacob deGrom. Um, so we saw him a little bit in the in the futures game. Is he like a, the first of the Marlins to get excited about? Yeah, he's he's a dude that's definitely worth getting excited about. We had him just off of our midseason top fifty. We didn't rank him on the mid on the postseason one on one this past year. He was in like the just missed category. If we'd went to one twenty five, I think he would have made it. We did rank him the two previous years. That's kind of to some extent like fake movement, you know, those the the bottom half of the list and being just off of the list are somewhat interchangeable, you know, with the ebbs and flows. He's had some injuries. He had he didn't hit a whole lot in two thousand eighteen. He's pretty cool. He's he's got a lot of power. It's a not particularly awesome fielding second baseman profile with a lot of power. So I think Marlins fans are going to be extremely familiar with that. Uh, it's not, it doesn't look like Dan Ugla, but there's like mm-hmm. some similarities in player type to Dan Ugla. He's pretty cool. Uh, he's definitely worth paying attention to. He's a keeper in terms of their future lineup. They already appear to be displacing Starlin Castro for him. I don't know if he's going to be a super huge different maker, difference maker. He's not like a top 10 global guy. And I don't know if he's going to make that Christian Yelich trade work out. I'm not sure there's anything that would make that Christian Yelich trade work out. But he's I, they're, cool. they're starting from such a, such a hole with the way that Brinson panned out. Yeah, that, that was unfortunate. And again, you know, there's just some percentage of guy. Brinson was a hell of a prospect and there were some, you know, minor red flags. And it just, I guess, turns out he really can't hit, but you know, maybe two years from now that changes. You never know. It's not certainly not a lost cause with the amount of physical talent he has. Yeah. Diaz isn't a perfect player, but he's got a pretty good chance to be a very good first division regular. So the other guy I wanted to ask you, I got an in-person look last night at one Bo Bichette, uh, of the Toronto large baseball sons. Uh, he, <laughs> He took, uh, so he's a guy who I forget if he was top 10 on, on y'all's list, but he's like in that, that tier of prospects. Uh, he took Charlie Morton out to the opposite field once and came within probably 15 total fit, feet of doing it three times, uh, between a double and a long foul ball he hit. Uh, he is smaller than I expected given who his dad is, but a really talented player. He's uh, He has some of the quickest hips and the quickest hands you're ever going to see swinging a bat. It's just like he gets through the zone so fast and generates so much bat speed. It's really kind of incredible. Um, I don't know how great the approach is. I also don't think it's going to matter a whole lot. 
I expect him to hit for a lot of power and he stayed at the shortstop position so far. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's played some second base in the minors too, but it kind of looked earlier in his career. Like he might shift a little further down the defensive spectrum than he has. He may still end up at second base, may even end up at third base, but he's definitely going to stay on the dirt and he's just, he, he hits the ball really, really, really hard. It's just like, let it fly. He's incredibly fun to watch. And like like you said, he really doesn't share that much in common with his father. In term, you know, his father was a sluggardly slugging outfielder who Maybe the worst defensive outfielder I've ever seen. Yeah, just absolutely terrible defensively. Didn't take any kind of walks, just but he was, you know the Blake street bombers is the original Colorado Rockies. He, he hit so many home runs at altitude and the sun has that kind of power, but he has just a much more, much, much, much more well-rounded total game. He's got a chance to be a real star. We had him, I believe number 12 last off season and number eight at mid season. So for us, you know, he's one of the top 10 prospects in baseball, just a chance to be a phenomenal player. And, you know, Gosh, they have so many kids of major leaguers from when you and I were growing up now. You know, they have Biggio's son, they have Vlad's son, and now they have Dante Bichette's son. Yeah, and like they're hitting those last night they hit uh those three, Lord Escuriel and Justin Smoke were their their top five. And like, you know, uh you know, Vlad Vlad Jr. came up um the middle of this season and he was like the you know, Guriel had been up a lot for for a while, but like Vlad Jr., Bichette, and and Biggio had been up have been up like uh total like none of them were in the majors more than three and a half months ago. Um and like you can see it already. Like you can see the next good Blue Jays team just from those four guys. And they've got a long way to go in, in terms of like developing pitching and and finding guys to fill out the rest of that lineup, but like in terms of doing the hard part, they've done a lot of the hard parts just with those four players. So that's, they're yeah, going to be a fun they're, team they're just absolutely really tremendous. They do have a pitcher coming named Nate Pearson, Nate who Pearson, we had yes. in the top 25 at midseason. And he famously threw 104 miles an hour in the Arizona Fall League last season. He regularly tops 100 wipe out slider. He's got a chance to be at the top of the rotation pitcher if he gets healthy. So there's help coming on the way for that too. I mean, Jacob Wog's pack undrafted free agent picked up in the air and loop deal, uh, shut down the race last night. So, you know, pitching help can come from unexpected places. Uh, old miss legend, Jacob Wog's pack pitching. Well, all right. Uh, I got to get back to the park. Uh, you got to go do your thing, but I appreciate you taking some time out to, to come and talk to me about the two things, well, prospects which you love and Mets and the Mets whom you you love to hate so much. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me on, Michael. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. And that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-I-N-G-E-R-M-L-B. ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, so uh, you'll find a familiar voice on the other end of the line uh, for my next guest. It's Ben Lindbergh. Ben. Hello. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, something that everybody sort of expected would happen, but didn't expect would happen this much this quickly. Uh, Aaron Sanchez, uh, he's, uh, obviously a former all-star pitcher, uh, or he was an all-star with the Toronto Blue Jays. He was traded to the Houston Astros at the deadline, at which point he was leading major league baseball losses. His ERA was over six, uh, and he, uh, threw the first six innings of a combined no hitter and, uh, while the Astros fixed him. 
<laughs> yes, it seems like it happened overnight. And maybe that's too simplistic a stance. And we can talk about that, I think. But because it was so dramatic, because you have a guy who had the highest ERA in the league in Toronto, and then he goes to Houston and immediately throws six no-hit innings, it could not have been, I think, more reinforcing of what everyone thought when this trade happened. And even before this trade happened, people were writing that Aaron Sanchez was a trade target and that some smart team could pick him up and change his pitching approach and his pitch selection and maybe get something good out of him. And of course, when he went to Houston, knowing that the Astros have this long track record of doing this with pitchers going back to Colin McHugh and Charlie Morton and Garrett Cole and Verlander to a certain extent and Ryan Presley and the list goes on and on. And Sanchez very much fit the mold of the type of pitcher they have acquired and made very predictable and obvious changes to and then had those guys experience greater success. So to see it happen so quickly and so Suddenly and dramatically, I, I think it it confirmed what we all thought, but I, I don't think anyone thought it would happen so quickly. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that it was literally his first start uh, is just I think that's just one of those things that everybody's enjoying because we all know it's sort of hilarious and uh, and weird and like just so pat with the narrative. Yeah, and probably a bit illusory. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I think- who knows? You know, <laughs> if, he turns, if he starts off a no hitter in his next start, we'll probably talk about him again. Yeah. Uh, so there are certain things. Obviously, we don't have to just confine ourselves to the results here. We can look at the process and what he did differently. And he did do things differently and in the completely predictable way that we thought he might do things differently. So everyone knew he had this high spin curveball and it seemed like it might make sense for him to throw that more often and it might fit the Astros pattern. And that's what happened here. He threw it at a career high rate, at least in in starts. Now, I'll note that he threw it barely higher than he had in some previous outings with the Blue Jays. So he, yeah, he threw he it was, about- He was also per, per, uh, perfect first time through the order in his last start with Toronto. So like he showed yeah. flashes. Right. His last two starts with Toronto, I think he struck out 16 guys without walking anyone in 10 and two thirds innings. So like clearly he still had something working at that point. But he threw a career high curveball rate at least in starts, but it was like 30% up from, you know, 27% in his previous start. And, and he'd thrown it like 29% of the time in earlier outings with Toronto. So obviously throwing, you know, a couple more curveballs does not make you go from worst pitcher to best pitcher. He did, of course, also throw more four seamers. And I was just talking to Harry Pavlidis, who does the pitch classifications for Brooks Baseball, and Harry reviewed this start and he looked at photos of Sanchez's grip and he is convinced that Sanchez did not throw a single sinker in this start. So if you look at his classifications on Brooks Baseball, it is entirely four seamers, which would be unprecedented in Sanchez's career, at least as a starter, for him not to throw any sinkers. And he threw his fastballs a little bit higher in the zone than he typically did with Toronto. So this all fits the description of the changes the Astros tend to make with pitchers like this. I think they have kind of an individualized plan. So it's not like the Pirates thing where everyone is going to throw this pitch in this location and that's just going to apply to all of the pitchers in our system. I think they take it on more of a case-by-case basis as they should. But for someone with the arsenal that Sanchez has, which is clearly the kind of pitcher the Astros favor, this is what you would expect them to have emphasized. And as many have written, including me in my book, the Astros tend to trade for guys and then they sit them down and they blow their minds with presentations with stat guys and coaches in the meetings and heat maps and video and simplified recommendations of throw this more and throw that less and throw your pitches in this location. And for whatever reason, they have a history of getting through to guys where other teams either failed to get through to them or didn't even try to get through to them. Yeah, and that's I mean that's been a big innovation of point of emphasis for just across baseball. We've seen like a lot of our friends get hired off of you know BP and, and Fangraphs over the past few years. Like some of you know a few of them are, are like less doing research than trying to hone that. How do you communicate to players? And right. that communication was I mean that was the huge breakdown in 
you know, the money ball eras of sabermetrics and teams are viewing that as its own skill, which I think is, you know, I, I think that's, that's an undervalued, maybe, maybe I'm just saying this because I'm a writer and this is my one skill, but I think it's an undervalued skill, uh, you know, across, uh, society and industry at large, the ability to like, to, to persuade and to prevent, you know, to teach, you know, yeah. not, not even like teach, um, tactically, but, or, uh, tactically in a tactile fashion, the way a pitching coach would, but like to, to impart information, you know, it's, I think that's like the big undervalued skill set. If that's like what the Astros are just doing better than anybody else, then, you know, I, I think they deserve a lot of success they've had. Yeah. And it has been an undervalued skill, but the surprising thing I think is to the ex- the extent to which it evidently still is undervalued, even after all this time, because there was a time where people writing on the internet were smarter about at least certain aspects of baseball than the baseball teams. But that time has passed us by for the most part because a lot of our former colleagues have been hired because teams hire people who uh, write the things that people on the internet have tended to write. And you write some smart analysis and you get snapped up by a team if that's and now, your and goal. And like, they're going out and getting those people like in their infancy of, exactly. like, yeah, of analysis. Like you don't even get to the point where, you know, you become – you know, like a, a Keith Law and you get, you know, hired to work for a team. Like right. you you get teams are identifying these prospects, so to speak, for yeah. you know, for analytical and and development roles so much faster. And because of that, in this era, generally by the time you read something on the internet or in a book, teams are well aware of it and they have already started to implement it. And so that's why I think this stands out so much is that we all understand that the Astros have this skill. It's being written about everywhere. It's obviously not a secret to any teams who are paying attention to anything, which I think describes the other 29 teams. And so the question is, why does this keep working? I mean, if Garrett Cole can be traded from the Pirates to the Astros and every other blogger predicts that, oh, he's He's going to do this and it's going to make him better. And then that's exactly what happens. And then other teams keep trading with the Astros and the Astros keep doing this thing over and over again. You'd think at a certain point, other teams would say, hey, why don't we just do this instead of trading our guys to the Astros and letting them get the better of these deals? And I think it's kind of a fascinating question about why this keeps happening, why even though this knowledge is out there, the Astros still seem to be the best at implementing it. And maybe it's just that they have the experience. They were the first to really do this in the fashion that they did it. They have Brent Strom, who everyone says is such a great communicator. He kind of blends the old school and the new school. He can talk to players. Obviously, they have great organizational buy-in at this point because they've had so much success with previous pitchers to have done this and and because a lot of those guys are really high-profile pitchers. If Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole go over to Houston and they're willing to make changes, then how is Aaron Sanchez, how is Ryan Presley, guys of that caliber, going to go over to Houston and say, well, I'm not willing to do the things that Justin Verlander was willing to do. And they won a World Series and they've been the best baseball team. And so I, I think that inspires confidence so that if you're with one team and they tell you to do a thing, then maybe you're not so receptive to it. But if you go to Houston, you are. And I think it's also just the natural change of scenery thing. You're in a new setting with new voices who maybe you haven't kind of tuned out because you've been hearing them for years and you're eager to please because you want to make a a good impression on your new employers. And if you're someone like Sanchez, who is coming off a really rough start to the season, then, of course, you're going to feel a little more insecure and you're going to be more willing to tinker. And so the question is, did the Blue Jays fail by not getting Sanchez to make these changes or did the Astros just take advantage of being the new voice, being the new employer that could get through to him. And Drew Fairservice, who does the Birds All Day podcast for The Athletic about the Blue Jays, he tweeted that the Blue Jays had tried time and time again to get Sanchez to throw more four-seamers and that they were rebuffed either by him or by his agent, Scott Boris, or both. And he essentially expressed the opinion that it wasn't going to work in Toronto, not so much because Toronto doesn't know the things that Houston knows, but just because he'd been there too long. And for whatever reason, the the system was not set up for him to make a breakthrough there. 
And maybe there's something to that. And and if you just know that that's going to be the case, then if you're trading with Houston, you should almost price in the improvement that the player is going to make after he goes there. Yeah. I So I wanted to reinforce those two, those last two things that you said that like, this goes back to, and it's so like, I I really do like how this sort of comes back to the same tropes that we've been talking about for 15 years, but with different um, different ideas at the base. Like, this is the way we used to talk about team chem- chemistry. Like, if you're winning, then the chemistry will come. And just having had success, not even just like having Justin Verlander saying, no, you should listen to these guys. Uh, they know what they're talking about. Um, but like you said, they've won a World Series. The results speak for themselves. And it's just so much easier to get buy-in. But also, I think there is like a the old school just needs a change of scenery kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. I think like we talk, we still do. I think in the in the public sphere, think about baseball players as data rather than people, r- rather than like workers. You know, and not in the way that you know I usually make that distinction, <laughs> but but. You know, people are unpredictable. And so Mm -hmm. if you're going through a tough time, you've had the same voices and it's just not working, maybe you're not receptive to change and just throwing, you know, just I I know I've absolutely had times in my life where I've just like, you know what, I just need to blow it all up and, and start over. And I think that's that's why it's so smart for the Astros to come in right away with a ton of data and just sit down like ver- first day or two within the organization. No, like there's no, we're going to uh, let you keep doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like don't, don't even uh, give the player a chance to fall back into those old habits. If you think you can change them right off the bat. And I think that's why, it, you know, if you have success early with that, you know, that's just all it takes to start building new habits. And, and so I think that there's a, yeah, there is a lot of, you know, I I don't really, you know, I don't it looks like the Blue Jays after one week of this uh of this trade. And this is like one thing is is it was sort of predictable that this would happen to Sanchez if you know if he moved to any one of probably a dozen teams. Mm-hmm. And also like I wouldn't trade Joe Biagini for Derek Fisher straight up. <laughs> so I didn't like this trade uh at all <laughs> for, for, from Toronto's perspective. But I have a hard time like blaming them for not doing this themselves because I think there is a lot of uh there's a lot of baked in, you know, old habits that you're into, you know, you get into when you're in any professional relationship. And uh, you know, I, I I don't think this was ever going to happen for, you know, or well, I have no way of knowing that, but yeah, I, it's more likely that this would happen for Sanchez if he moved to another team. And so, you know, that's just sometimes what it happened, you know, what, what it takes is that the change of scenery, not even just like the new coaches, new approach, new data, but like the way that we would have talked about it in 1995, like, you know, sometimes you just need a fresh start. Mm -hmm. I think there are teams out there and I don't know whether the Blue Jays are one of them that have coaches who are still stubborn about integrating information, taking instruction from the front office. And you also, I think, have front offices that are reluctant to press the issue with their coaching staff, which is not an issue in Houston. You could argue that they've pressed too hard at times, but they've been willing to really clean house and just get rid of people who weren't on board with applying information in this way and bring in new people who were. And so I think other teams could potentially take a lesson from the Astros there in that you can't really just let people keep doing the things that they've been doing because that's the way they've always been done. And they have their little fiefdoms and they're reluctant to allow others to have input there. So I think that has been a problem in the past in baseball. I don't know whether that's been a problem in Toronto. I know that they have had some overhaul in in their own coaching staff recently. I mean, they hired a a manager from the Rays. They hired a bench coach from the Astros. They're one of the teams that has plundered the Astros coaching ranks, presumably in an attempt to port over some of the things that the Astros have done. So Dave Hudgens was the Astros hitting coach for the past four seasons. He's now Toronto's bench coach. You'd think he's brought over some of the insights that Houston has during his Houston had during his tenure. And you'd think that that's how teams are trying to catch up. That's one way is hire Astros personnel, hire people from the teams that have done a good job of this and hope that they do a good job of it for you. And the Blue Jays have done that, at least to a certain extent. They didn't change their pitching coach, but they did make changes to their field staff. And in Sanchez's case, it 
evidently didn't work. It didn't lead to some great epiphany, but I don't know whether that's generalizable or whether it's just the case that he had been around for a while and maybe he wasn't as receptive there as he is in Houston. And I think Houston's learned over time, they've refined their approach and they've tailored it to players. So when I was talking to Ryan Presley about what the Astros told him, Really, the second he got there before his first game, they sat him down and initially they had front office analysts in the meetings and they were showing him graphs and it was all going over his head to a certain extent. And ultimately, he just said, guys, tell me what to throw. (laughs) What do you want me to do? I'll do it. And so they kind of boiled it down to a a few simple instructions that he could hold in his head and not have to worry about the numbers. And that worked for him. For other guys, it might not. They might want to know the numbers. They might want to know all the data that's backing up these recommendations. But I think the fact that you get a player who's willing to say, I trust you and I will do what you recommend, that says something about both the change of scenery and also about the Astros organization. The next and most obvious question is, how do the Astros stay out in front like this? And, you know, mm-hmm. some of this, maybe that's overstating the the degree to which they have an advantage in this sort of analysis and communication department. But there are a couple things. You mentioned the, you know, it's brain drain. Once you're successful for a matter of years, you know, people start picking up picking off your coaches, like you said, you know, Doug White went to the the Angels. They're starting to, to hemorrhage front office people from that group that built the World Series team. And you know, we'll see if they can continue, like if the people under Jeff Lunau are as good as the ones who who just left and whether not, I mean, not even just as good as, but they have to be better than those people now. And that's tough to, it's tough to sustain that. The other thing is what you said, you know, pricing in, once you get a reputation as a quote unquote smart organization, you know, I don't, I actually don't know how true this is in baseball, but yeah, I'll just bring in an example from soccer. There are clubs that have, have or had had a reputation for developing, uh, for being really good at scouting and development. And so like, if you come in to end the interesting thing about soccer from a data perspective is that trades are relatively rare. You just buy players contracts. So there's a dollar or pound or Euro value attached to every transaction. So they say, you know, they come in and say, Hey, we want this, uh, this 18 year old midfielder who you think is worth, $2 $2 million, we'll give you $3 million. The team that's selling will say, oh no, they must know something. We're going to ask for $10 million instead. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that makes it tough to continue to find these, uh, these tough cases. And again, like this trade was so obviously a steal, uh, from right. the beginning that I don't like, I don't <laughs> think that it's, uh, um, and you know, no disrespect intended to, to Derek Fisher. Um, but, yeah, I it was inexplicable from the beginning. So maybe that's not happening in baseball. But. Yeah, it didn't seem like there was a, an Astros premium built into this trade. But, but I wonder if that that does happen at some point. You'd and think, the, yeah. You hear rumors about that with like, you know, I, you know this team X wants, you know, prospect Y. Just you, like if they want your prospect, just go back and, and start looking at the film and try to figure out what they they want. And mm-hmm. the, the third thing, and we're running a little low on time, so I'll try to be shorter than I was, uh, than I have been is, you know, to, you mentioned that like, they're not just telling everybody to throw all breaking balls and, and four seamers up in the zone. And that's important that they not like, there's a, a level of arrogance and complacency that comes with every successful story because you know, the what they've done with Cole, what they did with Morton, what they did with Presley now, what presumably what they're doing with Sanchez, like that's not the only way to succeed. Mm-hmm. And we see pitchers like Marcus Sturman and Hyunjin Ryu, Mike Soroka have a lot of success throwing a lot of two seamers still. And it's uh they've got to continue to innovate. Like this one trick isn't going to work, not just because other teams are going to are going to catch up in terms of pitcher development, but because eventually hitters are going to figure out how to attack this. Right. And so like that's just it on on one like that's a these are three huge tasks that you know huge things that they have to to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so on one like it it almost seems like getting ahead is easier than staying ahead. Yeah, I I mean, I think that the Astros have targeted this type of pitcher because they think they can make significant changes. So whether it's via trades or in the draft, they think they can mold this type of pitcher in a way that would be advantageous to them and to the pitcher. 
And so that's the Astros type if they have one, but I don't think if they have other guys who don't fit that mold, they're not going to tell them to pitch in that same way. When they had Dallas Keuchel, they weren't saying, hey, do what Garrett Cole is doing because those are dramatically different guys. So maybe they were less willing to to keep Dallas Keuchel because he didn't fit that profile. But while they had him, I don't think well, they then were. Then they went out and got Wade Miles. Right, so that's like true they too. Are, that, yeah. There is that uh, that obvious flexibility. Yeah. So last couple of things, uh, there was a report, Joel Sherman wrote that the Mets, for instance, had been afraid to trade with the Astros or or other teams like the Astros because they were worried about being embarrassed by one of their players going to one of those teams and being better than he'd been in New York. And I think that is probably reflective of Mets ownership dysfunction more than anything else. Yeah, I, that's a bad way to, that's a, that you just can't go through life being afraid to, right. to get beat. Yes. Either, either adopt the ideas that you're so worried that this other team is going to implement or just trade with that team, but make sure that you get fair value for, for what that player will be. The last thing I'll say is we're talking on Tuesday here. Zach Greinke is making his Astros debut on Tuesday night. And it will be sort of fascinating to see whether he makes any changes because on the one hand, obviously he is far less in need of changes than Aaron Sanchez was. And also you'd think just because he is such a student of pitching and he's someone who's taken an analytical approach to the game since he was a young guy, that maybe there isn't as much to change in his case because whatever he should be doing, he is probably more likely to have been doing already. On the other hand, it's hard to think of a more willing pupil than Zach Greinke. I was going to like, <laughs> I, I could see like him either the Astros either sitting him down and saying, actually, what you're doing is fine. Right. Or the Astros sitting him down and like plugging him like Neo, you know, learning how to fight in the Matrix. Yeah. You just plug him in and he downloads everything. And yes. all of a sudden he knows Kung Fu. One of the two. <laughs> it will be one of those it's two. One of the, did you see there was, a, I think it was a Brian McTaggart from MLB.com, the Astros B writer, uh, retweeted a video a fan took uh, before a game of Granky and Verlander. Uh, hanging out in the dugout and Verlander's like showing him pitch grips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I saw that. I don't know, I just, yeah, it's just tantalizing. <laughs> so I'm eager to see what he does. Yeah, so am I. All right. Uh, so I'm sure we'll talk about this. This has been fun because like this doesn't happen that often. You know, we talk about every, you know, we were just talking about how smart all 30 teams are and I don't like the like even the the teams that we've sort of ragged on here a little bit or like who have who have been had players like this taken off their hands have had huge developmental successes even the Mets oh, yeah. like mm-hmm. and so it's just it's just interesting to see like what works where right. and it's I the whole premise of this is it's just hilarious that this works so well so <laughs> yeah. quickly well you know how I feel about predicting baseball we can't do it and yet you can't do it <laughs> when a pitcher goes I to the Astros to make you that, yeah. that seems to be the exception that seems to be the time when you can predict certain changes and actually have some confidence in it. All right. Well, one thing I can predict is that you and I will talk next Tuesday. But uh, until then, thanks for joining me. All right. Talk to you then. That'll do it for this week's episode of The Ringer MLB Show. Thanks to Zach and Ben for joining me today. Thanks also to Jarrett Seidler from Baseball Prospectus. Go read his stuff at BP. Go listen to For All You Kids Out There. Go follow him on Twitter at J-A-S-E-I-D-L-E-R. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Kevin Gossman, Jeff McNeil, and Aaron Sanchez for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. Navy Federal is proud to serve more than 8 million members, including active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their families. You'll receive a lifetime of membership benefits with Navy Federal, and you can easily access accounts, transfer money, pay bills, and deposit checks with the Navy Federal mobile app. Visit NavyFederal.org slash MLB for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply.